0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with S. Kirk Walsh, author of the novel The Elephant of Belfast. I
1: think one thing about my book, which happened during 9-11, was what I was interested in exploring was the intersection of private grief, and public grief.
0: We'll be back with S. Kirk Walsh in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's patreo dot com slash Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com draft firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, But there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview, then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is fiction writer, teacher, and editor S. Kirk Walsh, author of the novel The Elephant of Belfast. Walsh's work has been published in the New York Times Book Review, the Virginia Quarterly, and Long among others. Her novel, The Elephant of Belfast, is based on true events that took place in Northern Ireland during World War II. It tells the story of 20 year old Hetty Quinn, who in 1940 becomes the Belfast Zoo's first female zookeeper. Hetty's main charge is Violet, a three year old elephant from Ceylon. After the death of her sister and being abandoned by her father, the elephant provides Hetty with solace and a sense of purpose. Once the German blitz of Belfast begins, Hedy must fight to save the elephant and survive the destruction. We began the interview with S. Kirk Walsh sharing how she heard about the true life story.
1: I had heard about this idea on the radio. So it's based on a woman named Denise Austin who is called the Elephant Angel. And in 2009, the Belfast Zoo did a campaign to figure out her identity because they didn't know who she was and they discovered her cousin quickly called in and he's like, Oh, that was my cousin. You know, it's kind of a feel good, uh, story. It got broadcasted all over the world. And I was one of the millions of people. (laughs) I'm sure many other writers might've heard it and thought that would make a good novel. Um, but I got, and I, put it in my back pocket. And actually when I went to go see my agent in New York and she was still submitting that second novel, she asked me, what are you gonna write next? And you know, I guess the good news is is that I don't have a shortage of ideas. And I said to her, I have six ideas. And she said, okay, tell them to me. And she said, I think you should write the Belfast novel. Um, and I was drawn to it because my family is Irish Catholic. and I always thought I would write a story set in Ireland. I didn't expect it to be up in Belfast, which is a more complicated place um, than the south. And but kind of as even before I got to Belfast and started doing research, I started seeing parallels with September 11th. And I always, I never thought like, oh, I gotta write a September 11th novel, but. I felt drawn to telling that story somehow. And it, it the more I got into the Belfast story, and particularly when we went there and I interviewed survivors, I saw that I had access because of being in New York. And um, yeah, so it kind of was a gradual process. It certainly wasn't easy, um, you know, writing about Belfast and being from Detroit and you know, having spent most of my adult life in New York City, but it was, I, I saw a gap because it hadn't been written about really. There's only one novel that was published by the Irish writer Brian Moore in 1965 called The Emperor of Ice Cream. And he was an air raid patrol man, um, but in London, not in Belfast. But that was that's the only novel that's written about the Blitz. So I, I think I kind of, there are multiple variables that kind of, made it seem like there was an opening for a story.
0: So you mentioned that you heard this story about Denise on the radio. What was the real story?
1: The real story is that she, um, it's pretty close to my story in some ways. I mean, I certainly made up a lot, but she was the first female zookeeper and she took, Actually, before the Easter Tuesday bombings, she was taking this young elephant named Sheila, which is my first name, um, which also kind of drew me into the story. Uh, She was taking the elephant home because of the fear of the bombings. Um, And what happens in the story with the animals um, did happen. Uh, And, you know, eventually... She wasn't able, you know, she got caught, and she had to not take the elephant home every night, and she would stay with the elephant in the zoo while the, as the war. there was one more bombing in May, which I didn't write about, Um, but it's pretty close. I mean, I, I did fictionalize aspects of her character, and when I went to Belfast, I interviewed her last living relative, David Ramsey, and he was a bit younger. He actually has memories of riding the elephant when he was a boy. And, um, you know, I said to him, I'm going to make stuff up. Is that OK? And he said, yes. So
0: <laughs> so your novel is about, it takes place in Belfast, I think it's 1941.
1: It starts in October of 1940, and it ends in the end of April 1941.
0: And our, our main character is named Hetty. She is 20 years old. Her real name is Harriet. She has an older sister who recently died in childbirth, Anna, who and, and Hetty's Protestant. And Anna was married to a Catholic. And her, her husband, Liam, is very involved in the IRA. So you have the tension of, of the religion and the politics in there. Uh, Hetty's father also had left the family and so there was like um, an emptiness there for her that added to her character, and she lives with her mother, and she becomes the first zookeeper, and she also has a few potential love interests. So tell me about when you started fictionalizing it. What tensions you really wanted Hetty to confront, and the qualities, like who you wanted her to be on the page?
1: Well, that's a great question. I would say that was a big part of my revision process. It was hard or challenging to kind of figure out what her agency was going to be because she was a young woman who didn't have that many choices. And so in the beginning, it was just her trying to get the full-time job (laughs) at the zoo And then beginning to think about moving out of her house with her mom um, and living on her own, you know, making enough money that she could be on her own. And then with the bombings, I felt like that's when the story really lifts up for her because she is put into circumstances that she couldn't imagine and does find her agency and does find that she can move through the world of limited choices and you know at different times probably follows her impulses um when she wouldn't have normally and I think a part of that was her coming into her own and you know at the beginning of the story she is grieving her sister's death and you know that is a shadow on her life and even when her sister was alive, you know, she was very much in the orbit of her sister and her sister was at the center. And I think by the end of this novel, Hetty gets to feel what it's like to have her own center, even though all this tremendous trauma has happened. And I think trauma and war, and as we've learned with the pandemic and grief, it can bring about surprising changes and people and it's hard to know what those might be for many years but I think with Hetty, that was kind of you know I always knew it was going to begin and end on the Antrim Road it's just in between <laughs> those images and I did I did 16 drafts of the book and you know it wasn't all focused on Hetty, but I mean one character that emerged later in the writing process was um, Eliza Crowley. And she's the young Catholic woman who works up in the canteen. And someone had suggested that I needed something to show Hetty how good she had it, you know, to actually have a job. And I felt like Eliza gave me something to sort of begin to show Hetty who she was, um, because that before that she meets her, you know, she's really her dead sister's sister in a
0: way. You mentioned earlier how during times of war or pandemic, everything changes. And I'm curious how that changed for you.
1: In the writing process or during the pandemic?
0: During the pandemic. Like how did the pandemic change, change you as a person or a writer or both?
1: Yeah. So, I had an unusual experience. Um, I sort of was in, I, I lost both my parents about three months before the pandemic. Um, they passed away 10 weeks apart. And so I was sort of in crisis mode um, before the pandemic. And the last normal thing I did was go to my mom's funeral on March 14th. And, you know, one of the first things we're going to do. In July is in Turner Ashes because we haven't done that yet, and so I guess it's hard to answer because I had these monumental life experiences. Um, yeah, I do feel different. You know, my hope is that just being able to see my own resilience. And I mean, one thing that was strange with the book was I did my last revision after my father died, and then I did the copy edits after my mom passed away, and. It was very strange because there's a theme of being an orphan in the book. And I felt like my characters were teaching me something about resilience. And I feel grateful to have made it through the pandemic with a loving partner and, you know, with a comfortable home. You know, the first six months at least, I was just sort of processing grief. And then everyone else, we were dealing with a global grief. And I think one thing about my book, which happened during 9-11 was um, what I was interested in exploring was the intersection of private grief and public grief. And I think with the pandemic, like, you know, our grief was so private and hemmed into our own houses and where we were. And I think for me, one of the struggles I had was I couldn't hug my friends. And it was just a very strange not to be able to do that and now that I'm vaccinated you know I can hug my friends and I think yeah just appreciating the cellular experience of being around people Um, because I think one of the things in New York after 9-11 is that the grief was on the streets you know there was all these memorials there were people crying on the streets You know, the chapel downtown was made into a place of refuge for recovery workers. And I don't know what it's like in the city right now. But, you know, they went through such a just to sort of allow space for grief, um, because I feel like everyone's going to need that. And I mean, my book has a lot of grief in it. If people need to identify with a character, hopefully they can get some solace it's funny. My sister, um, she asked a question about how did one sort of definition of humility change or be challenged during the pandemic? And I think even with humility, like, I think I was sort of afraid most of the time because of COVID and my husband was teaching in person since the fall. And so I was just afraid that he was going to get it and get sick. And I, you know, in the beginning was like, I didn't think I could handle one of us getting sick after losing my parents.
0: But you probably, as you said, you you found your own resiliency and that, I don't know if you were stronger than you thought, but maybe, maybe you were.
1: I, I knew when I was going through it, I, I got to be with both my parents as they were dying. And I knew I was being given a gift and that it's a holy moment to be with one's parents. I think it was so devastating to see other people not being denied that. Um, and yeah, I, I do think I saw that I w- could um, go through something so intense and then, um, you know, go through the pandemic and try to live a day at a time under unusual circumstances.
0: So when you, when you had that idea, and then you went to Belfast. What did you discover when you were kind of on the ground there?
1: I discovered I really wanted to tell the story. You know, I felt kind of my emotional connection to the story develop. And that happened when I interviewed one of the survivors, Vance Rogers. I, he was 91. He's since passed away. But he, he was um, in an office building downtown uh, the night of the Easter bombings and his house was totally destroyed. And, but he talked about riding his bike um, in the aftermath of the bombings and all uh, the ashes and the smell of burning in the air. And I just was reminded of being in the city when nine eleven happened and feeling sort of that experience of our common humanity when it's under attack and there's nothing else I've ever experienced like that. And um, the other thing I that kind of I felt like took me further in was um, at the zoo, the old zoo exists below the new zoo. And the zookeeper, Raymond Robinson, took us down to the old zoo and actually took us to the elephant house, which is, you know, totally dilapidated with weeds growing Um you know, through the doors and, but I got to stand inside it. And that was really amazing just to see the physical house that part of the book takes place, um, and seeing the enclosures. And I had tried to, I I wrote almost a complete draft before we went, so I could kind of have it in my imagination before. Um, but seeing the zoo was really helpful. And then we also spent some time in the shipyards um, and that was really helpful just to get a sense of that typography. And this is a little tangent gentle, but it did sort of commit me to the story. So we stayed at a bed and breakfast that was kind of similar to Hetty's house. I mean, I wanted to choose a building that had similarities so I'd get a sense of it. And it was on the Lisburn Road and there's a stadium, uh, King's stadium just down the street. And everyone else that was staying there their bed and breakfast was going to see Bruce Springsteen while we were there. Cause it, like, and they were just like had seen him hundreds and hundreds of times and we didn't have tickets, but you know, we we're hearing all their stories of seeing Bruce. And so my husband and I, the first night of the concert, we thought, Oh, maybe we'll try to buy a ticket. But you know, we, couldn't and so we just sat on a lawn outside is an open-air stadium and we the sun was setting and Bruce Springsteen started playing this little light of mine um, and I felt like that felt like oh we gotta you know I don't know I just felt like I was being given a gift and even we were there um, in July which is marching season so the tensions between the Catholics and Protestants are a little bit more heightened and I, even though it was marching season and there were some marches going on, I never felt afraid there. You know, the people who showed us around were so kind. And I think sort of having that tension in the city, you know, obviously it's resurfaced in the past couple months. Um, but I feel like that kind of colors people's perspective of the city. And, you know, obviously the IRA is a part of the book, but it's not the story. And I didn't want it to be because I wanted it to be a fuller picture of Belfast.
0: We mentioned Eliza Crowley earlier, and I don't want to let her fly off into the netherworld w- without discussing her. So, you know, at the zoo, Hedy's community was basically her neighborhood. Liam, her, her sister's uh, husband, um, after her sister died, and his child— and then a few people she knows from school, one one boy in particular named Samuel, but the most of her community was the people that she worked with at the zoo. And Eliza was spunky, and she was encouraging to Hetty to go out, to be social, to take risks. And it's interesting that she came in later in the drafts. and i'm I'm wondering if you want to talk about that.
1: Well, like I said, a friend had said, that I needed another young woman up at the zoo to kind of reflect back to Hetty, her opportunities and how good she had it, even though she's dealing with a lot in her life. And I felt like Eliza, she just came to me really easily, and she was just this fully alive character. You know, I knew I wanted her to be Catholic. Yeah, someone to kind of show Hetty the possibilities and that it was okay to take risk and it was okay to flirt and other people have mentioned um, that they really liked the scene with the lipstick at the dance hall and I think you know she just was kind of a mentor to an unlikely mentor to her and you know she does end up leaving the city due to the evacuations. She took her younger sibling to north, and I was sorry to see her go, Um, but I also, yeah, um, I felt like she did the work that she needed to do and really gave Hedy more dimension, you know, made her kind of entertain different possibilities and take more risk, and then, you know, I think later in the novel when she does take more risk, you know, there's a little bit of Eliza with her, you know through a lot of the novel, particularly in the beginning, it's her sister who's with her a lot of the time. And, you know, that doesn't diminish, but I would say that having another kind of vibrant female voice and a younger one kind of helped her see her life a little bit differently.
0: Because the, the tension between the Catholics and the Protestants was present. Was it important for you to to choose which religion that Hetty was going to be, or did you model it after what the real woman was?
1: I modeled it after the real woman. so i it was a little hard just because I come from an Irish Catholic family. And when I wrote my very first couple drafts, I let everyone be Catholic. <laughs> and I actually, my protagonist um, in the first draft, her name, she had a Gaelic name, it was Ashlyn, which means hope in Gaelic. And, you know, I just let myself do that to kind of feel more connected to the characters. And then I had to change many of them to being Protestant, just to be realistic and true to the story. And I felt like in the events with the IRA that are present in the narrative, you know, all of those happened. So I wasn't trying to embellish, you know, I wasn't trying to make it what it wasn't. And I did, um, my grandmother who I definitely was sort of writing to my grandmother in many ways. Um, she was sort of my audience at one in the beginning and her first marriage, she wanted to marry her high school sweetheart, but her parents wouldn't let her because he wasn't Catholic. And so the interfaith marriage, um, tension did exist in my family, you know, in an earlier generation. And I did want to explore that. And yeah, I just felt like that would be a way to show how present it was. Cause when I actually went to Belfast and asked people about the Catholic Protestant conflict, they were like, Oh no, that wasn't going on then. You know, that wasn't an issue. And then, uh, Later in the process, the scholar, Brian Barton, who's the foremost historian of the Blitz, he really helped me capture the nuances of the conflict. And it that was it was hard. You know, it took a lot of time um, to kind of figure out how I would animate that in the narrative. And he really um, helped me in a lot of different ways. Because, yeah, I understand why people didn't want to talk about it. Like I said, it's sort of what people are, the first thing they might think of when they think of Belfast are the troubles.
0: I was curious um, about writing about an elephant. Mm. I'm wondering what your relationship is to animals. And then you had to cover, like, Hetty's relationship to Violet. name of the elephant, but also Violet herself.
1: It's been really interesting to just think about my relationship to animals because I wouldn't, you know, when I first started writing fiction, I didn't think, oh, I'm going to write a novel about an elephant. I mean, it wasn't, it just sort of organically, I ended up (laughs) writing about an elephant. But, um, you know, I did grow up with animals. You know, I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit. I did, you know, times were sometimes hard. Uh, when I was growing up, my mom did suffer from some mental illness and I did and my siblings in different ways, we all sort of had different connections to animals. And um I do remember once um when I was maybe eight, the cat having kittens in the floor of my mom's closet and you know, just being fascinated by the mother, you know, licking the placentas off the kittens. And, you know, but that said, I wasn't like, didn't ride horses, you know, I wasn't uh, requesting to go to the zoo all the time. And I think with the elephant, as a writer, it was really challenging to write about an animal. And once again, like, I feel like Hedy's character, like finding agency and developing Violet's character, um, it took a lot of time. Um, I did travel, well, when I got back from Belfast, kind of my next leg of research was with the Houston Zoo. And I was just really lucky that they have a great kind of zoo program there, I mean elephant program, and they had two three-year-old elephants when I went there in 2013 and one of them his named Tupelo. And I got there and they let me wash the elephant. And just like that physicality of knowing the height, feeling the skin. And then they let me, you know, watch the treatments and the trainings. And it was just like being a Belfast, like I couldn't have written the book without those experiences and I really, Got to see kind of the, I don't know, it like being a zookeeper, it's like a spiritual job <laughs> in terms of the discipline and the like how calm you have to be because you have to be calm for the animal to be calm. And there was one, the second time I went, it was like I went twice within three months, and the second time they were doing a ultrasound of a pregnant female or her name was Tess. And they had to basically clean out her rectum. Um, and so, cause they had to go inside to do the ultrasound and there were like four zookeepers cleaning her out. And it was just like a shower of manure and they just were totally calm. And after that, and then the chief veterinarian came and did the ultrasound. But after I w- witnessed that, I was like, this is all I need to know <laughs> to write about and someone taking care of an elephant. Um, but it did, you know, their relationship took a lot of time. Um, and also, you know, as you mentioned, Hedy has those different kind of love interests and kind of the idea by the end of the novel is that you know it is a love story between a young woman and an elephant and you know her dedication to the animal and the animal saves her in a way and i i think sometimes when we go through hard times we don't know exactly what's saving us um, during the difficulties and i did i mean writing about the elephant i mean i really worked on the metaphors and the descriptions. I mean, it was something that like I spent a revision working on the descriptions of the elephant because there's only so many times you can describe an elephant as being gray and wrinkled. (laughs) So that was just one kind of lens of revision, but it was an interesting challenge. And there's a story that I did return to again and again Um, by Edward P. Jones called The Girl Who Raised Pigeons. And he writes so beautifully about those birds and how they somehow lift up this young girl um, from pretty bleak circumstances. And that was sort of my model in a way um, that I would read again and again just to sort of help me see how that relationship can be transformational.
0: What is your relationship between imagination and research? Because it sounds to me that you're very, like, tactile, on-the-ground, experiential writer.
1: One of my friends um, is a writer, Elizabeth McCracken, who I think you just talked to. um, And she had suggested to me to write a draft before I went to Belfast. Um, just so I could have it in my imagination before I saw the place and experienced it. And I did, I wrote about three-fourths of a draft before I got there. Um, and I think that is the challenge of historical fiction, is the intersection of research and imagination. And I think there can be a little bit of a trap of, oh my God, I have these amazing details. How am I going to make them work in scene? And sometimes you just have to let go of those details and let the scene and the characters tell you what they need. And so I definitely, I felt like it was sort of um, a synergistic relationship. Like I would, I did research a lot, but I never, um, a friend of mine, Rick Moody says, never let the research stop the writing and so I always was writing no matter what. And I always was revising. And then, you know, there were times where I would kind of take a step back and read more. But yeah, so it was just an ongoing process. But I, you know, the last third of the book um, after the Easter Tuesday bombing, it's pretty made up. Um, and I, that happened later. Um, in the writing process. And I think I had to be more comfortable in the world to kind of let myself have a little bit more freedom and to kind of trust the container of history and kind of lean into the story and the characters a bit more. And I think it took me a while to get to that place. Like initially when I started writing, I felt like I had this extraordinary scaffolding of story but I needed to do so much work to kind of, um, you know, create the contradictions of the characters.
0: How did you know after 16 drafts that you were on your last one?
1: Well, that's a good question. Um, So I did have sort of an unusual experience. I left my agent and I have sort of a couple friends who helped me with the process, but it wasn't, it didn't feel like it was a productive relationship anymore and in a part of that process Elizabeth um, McCracken read a draft and gave me some feedback and after that draft I felt it just and a a person who works in publishing a friend of mine Scott he uh, works for Random House in Toronto and he read it and he's like you know this this is done I think you need to try to sell it and um I I don't know if you ever feel done. I mean, I have reread passages and want to edit it. There's just a habitual revising (laughs) process of being a writer. But I did feel like, you know, one experience for me as a reader, when I finish a novel, is just to sort of imagine the life or the lives of the characters after the book is over. And I wanted to give that to my readers. I didn't want to say this is what Hedy's going to become. And it is kind of somewhat open-ended at the end with a little bit of hope. Um, And I wanted to give that to readers and allow them to have their own interpretation. And so, yeah, I guess you never really feel done, but I I did feel like I had put a lot of work into the book. And when my editor finally read it and, um, and Counterpoint bought the book. I, he was like, didn't have a lot of edits for me. Cause he's like, clearly you've been working on this for a long time.
0: I kind of walked away feeling, I mean, you mentioned hope. Hope is yes, you have to have hope, but I felt like a major theme of the book was Sacrifice, which I don't know if you can have any story about war without that, but I just wanted to ask you about it.
1: I do think that for anyone that goes through a difficult time, um, you know, when I was kind of strangely, during the time that I wrote this book, my mom was sick, and so I was traveling to Michigan a lot, and I did learn a lot about sort of the trade-offs and sacrifices you have to make, um, and having to do things you don't want to don't want to do. And I think Heidi's kind of pushed into that. And I just know from my own experience, sometimes there's a velocity to that experience that you don't really have a choice. It doesn't feel like during the moment you just have to sort of trust your instincts. And I think. That's what she does. And, you know, I I think for me, um, you know, it wasn't every time I got on an airplane to like either go help with my mom or when my parents were sick, it wasn't something I was it was hard. Um, But I now that I've gotten through that experience, I wouldn't trade it for anything um, to have spent time with them during when they were declining. And, you know, I think Heidi recognizes um, what's important. And, you know, I think at the beginning of the book, she's had all this loss and she has a lot of loss at the end too, but she's able to negotiate it, I think, from a place of grace. And I don't think she was able to see that at the beginning. And I think a part of going through difficult times is being present enough for the grace when they, you know, those moments happen. And I think that's what she, you know, at the end. And it, you know, perhaps it's through the sacrifice, um, but also making herself vulnerable to other people.
0: It's interesting too, how during war it can change relationships and and you had been talking about nine eleven and the way New Yorkers mourned but also came together and like probably more a solidarity than they've ever had or ever ever will. um hopefully they won't have another incident like that to to force the issue. but that also happened in your book where people who had hurt hetty um. Helped her later because I think they realize that there's something bigger at play than their small needs in the moment.
1: Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, I had some friends. I I wasn't. I I worked on the Upper West Side and I lived on the Upper West Side, so I was not directly downtown. I, I do have some friends that were down there. I know a few people who died, and a few of my friends were told to go down there after it happened. And I, yeah, and it was just a different experience walking down the sidewalks. And I live near Central Park and a lot of people were going into the park and there was such an odd tension between the days that followed nine eleven and the day itself because it was beautiful. You know, it was blue skies, but yet there was still the burning, you know, depending how the wind shifted you could smell the burning. And it was just, I think there was a certain intimacy. I know that I felt like with my neighbors, if they had lost someone and people kind of talking more openly. And I guess with the pandemic, that is something I've ex- I've gotten closer to my neighbors because um, I've spent so much time at my house. Um, but I do think tragedy brings intimacy in unexpected ways and um you know one moment I think I kind of wrote from I, I think this was the Friday after 9-11 I was um on the Upper West Side and a good friend of mine at the time he was he's gay and he's dying of AIDS and um we were outside on Columbus Avenue and someone had handed out those white candles with like Little paper skirt around it, um, and people were singing the national anthem. And our friend was leading um, the song. He was a former opera singer, and it was just this amazing moment of like strangers kind of breaking out in song. And I think, you know, in my there's an image that I wrote from in Belfast where the, there's a young woman playing a piano and soldiers are standing around her on the street and I think that was something I was writing towards of that kind of collective not joy but humanity and just unexpected moments that can arise out of tragedy and I do use song and music in the book a lot um, I think as a way to hopefully bring some levity to traumatic circumstances.
0: Is there anything else about the book, I'm just looking at my notes, that you want to talk about that we didn't?
1: Well, I I think one thing that um, I was thinking about, so I wasn't able to have kids myself, and I was interested in writing a character who's childless. I mean, she's young. But, um, you know, it's definitely sort of choosing a life for herself um, that doesn't involve becoming a mom. And, you know, the women, both Josephine and Stella, don't have kids. And I think for me, um, there was a point in my life, I, you know, having grown up in an Irish Catholic family, there's just a huge value placed on procreation. And I didn't not choose it. It was just my body <laughs> Did not say yes to that, and um, but it was hard to reconcile that loss. Um, and I think a part of my fiction now is, you know, writing into that as a strength, you know, and that there's other ways of being in the world. And for me, Hedy was constantly having to make a choice. Um, no, I'm not. That's not what I'm going to do, even though she's being presented with these different kind of opportunities, and um, I think for me it was really, yeah, that the primary relationship can be with an animal. It doesn't have to be a husband. I mean, I've been married for a long time.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: So I chose um, a short story by Don DeLillo, um, The Angel Esmeralda, and I'll just read um, just like, a paragraph and a half. It's from, towards the end of the story, it's a story about two nuns, um, mostly from Sister Edgar's point of view, and a 12-year-old girl has been murdered, and they're looking for her kind of ghost-like appearance in the Bronx. After 20 minutes, there was a rustle, a sort of human wind, and people looked north. Children pointed north, And Edgar strained to catch what they were seeing. The train. She felt the words before she saw the object. She felt the words, although no one had spoken them. This is how a crowd brings things to single consciousness. Then she saw it, an ordinary commuter train, silver and blue, ungraffiti, moving smoothly towards the drawbridge. The headlights swept the billboard And she heard a sound from the crowd, a gasp that shot into sobs and moans and the cry of some unnameable painful elation, a blurted sort of whoop, the holler of unstopped relief. Because the train lights hit the dimmest part of the billboard, a face appeared above the misty lake, and it belonged to the murdered girl. A dozen women clutched their heads, they whooped and sobbed, a spirit, a god's breath passing through the crowd. Esmeralda, Esmeralda.
0: Why did you choose that?
1: Well, that story in particular, to DeLillo writes so well about the Bronx and kind of a collective consciousness of the crowd and the nurse at uh, the nuns as they see the ghost-like image of the girl on the billboard and. I think he just, his use of language is so electric. And I think he's, like with that moment, there's kind of a stillness and emotion at the same time. And it's something that I aspire to in my own
0: work. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: I'm just going to read a paragraph um, from the beginning of the novel, and it's when the elephant is arriving, but I'm kind of, it's just a paragraph about the city. On page six, Belfast was alive with activity that morning. The hum of life and industry were was everywhere. The docks, the streets, the factories, lorries, cars, and buses streamed through major arteries of the city. Pedestrians hurried along the pavements to their jobs. At the York Street Flack Spinning Company, pairs of rubbered apron women oversaw the electricity generators in the engine house, which drove the shafts of the machines that powered the spindles and looms that spun and wove the threads into cheap utility cloth and fabric for airplanes and other myriad purposes. Armies of men sat at their drafting tables at Short and Harlan, sketching designs of Sunderland flying boats and sterling bombers. The Linfield Football Club had begun its morning practice on its pitted playing field at Windsor Park, not far from the Lisburn Road. Dozens of poor Clare nuns sang, How Great is Our God, at their convent chapel on the Cliffville Road their voices coalescing into one celestial sound that drifted beyond the chapel's stained-glass windows. To Hetty, it felt as if the entire city were awake and ready for Violet and her auspicious arrival in Belfast. There was a freshness, an opportunity. Something was about to happen.
0: And why did you choose that passage?
1: It did take a long time to write, um, in the beginning of the book, I did, like I said, always knew it was going to be Violet's arrival, but it took me a little time to get down to the docks. <laughs> and I knew the first sentence eventually would not need to have an elephant in the first sentence just because the animal is the primary relationship. But that paragraph, I remember I went to the New York Yacht Club in Manhattan and did research about the building of the Titanic, which happened at the shipyards in Belfast. And some of those details came from that research. And I think I just wanted to show the city in a vital way. And a big part of the before of the book was showing the vitality of the city um, before the bombings. And I think I rewrote that paragraph a lot. (laughs) It just took a while to make it feel organic. Like I said, You can't always use all the details and kind of picking and choosing so that there's like echoes with what happens later in the book.
0: Where do you write?
1: Well, before the pandemic, I wrote in libraries and coffee shops. And now I write at home.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I run in the mornings. And then I'm also a birder. So my husband and I go birding at some parks nearby, and it always helps me um, take my mind off things.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: Well, I have two writer friends, uh, Karen Olson and Dominic Smith, and we've been exchanging work, I think, for almost 10 years now. And I give it to one of them, and the person I don't give it to first, I'll give it to them, you know, for the second draft.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: I try to let myself feel the disappointment when it happens, but not for too long, <laughs> and see it as an opportunity to reset and to kind of refocus and think about what my intentions are, with either if I'm going to be starting something new, but it, yeah, to try to use the energy towards. Moving forward versus feeling kind of stuck.
0: And what is your favorite word? Buoyant. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This is great. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest today was S. Kirk Walsh, author of The Elephant of Belfast. If you liked today's show, check out my interview with Karen Joy Fowler, where we discussed her novel, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves about a family who raised a chimpanzee alongside their children. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interview that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts in keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.